Good day, dear listeners. Steve Breda here with the Management Blueprint Podcast. And my guest is today is Aki Bolog, the co-founder and president of Market News, an AI-powered content intelligence and strategy platform, and DLC Link, tech company allowing Bitcoin holders to earn a yield on their Bitcoin while maintaining full ownership. Aki, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. And uh, you're the first one who's going to talk about Bitcoin on this show, even though we are 140 episodes in. So I'm super excited to get wet my get my feet wet, the podcast feet wet, podcast pod, I guess, wet into the crypto world. So how did you become an entrepreneur and why did you choose marketing content and crypto as your fields? What attracted you to these fields? Yeah, so I think I might have even inherited a gene from my grandfather to be an entrepreneur. My first business, quote unquote, was I was selling jokes when I was seven years old for a quarter. And of course, it was like, it really started off as a joke. But then at 15, at 14, I started started a Hungarian film club with my mom. Then at 15, I started a small business. 16 or actually 18, then I started a conference series at University of Michigan. I started another couple of clubs, a technology club for BBAs, et cetera, et cetera. And so I've always just been doing kind of side projects and side hustles. So many years after that, I was at a venture fund, OpenView Venture Partners in Boston, looking at five to $20 million investments for, for tech companies. And basically just the founder of the fund pulled me aside and he's, hey, I like you, but you shouldn't be here. You should be building a company. You can do venture and investing later. Just learn how to actually build a company. And yeah, next thing I know, I was starting Market News where I was looking to bring AI to marketing, did that for eight years. And then passed that on to CEO Chuck, who uh, succeeded me, and then started this new project where we're enabling utility for Bitcoin. So I would say it's a little bit of always being entrepreneurial and then always trying to follow technology that can make, I would think, the biggest impact on the world. Yeah, that's fascinating. Actually, Chuck Frydenborg, he was a guest on this podcast about 60 episodes or so ago. So he definitely was a, a very interesting guest. And they talked about market news and how you create, use AI to power content. But this is not a topic today. We're going to talk about your second business or at least your follow-up business, probably not the second, maybe the 12th. I don't know. <laughs> so why did you get interested in crypto and what did you see in it that was promising for you? Yeah, I had actually heard of Bitcoin in 2011 when I was in San Francisco, but I actually didn't do anything about it. I have like a lot of people have my kind of early crypto sob story of I had some amount of money and I could have put it in Bitcoin, but instead I put it into myself, <laughs> which in hindsight might have not netted the return otherwise. So I didn't get into it because of the tremendous upswings we saw. I got into it because, and this is actually another Hungarian connection. Steve is from, was born in Hungary. I am from Hungary also. Not everybody in crypto is from Hungary, but one of the potential founder, one of the people who is rumored to be Satoshi is a Hungarian, Nick Sabo. But that's not what it was. What actually was, I was leaving Market News and looking at new projects. And I just got interested in the kind of crypto web three. And I made an introduction for my friend, Lazo, who has a software development agency where they build crypto stuff. And they ended up winning the project to build the Chivo wallet for El Salvador, which is El Salvador's Bitcoin wallet. So about a year ago, year and a couple months ago, their president, Bukele, made Bitcoin like legal tender in El Salvador. 
and they needed a wallet technology to actually hold the Bitcoin. And so these Hungarian guys went and built it. There was actually a first wallet that didn't work, and then they built the second wallet, and it worked great. And what I saw is when they launched the wallet, it had 250,000 daily active users right from the from launch. And over a couple of, I guess, a month or two, it got up to 4 million registrants, which is just also astonishing in that I think you have to have an El Salvadorian kind of citizen number, some sort of ID number to get the wallet. So anyway, a bunch of, a large part of the country adopted it. And the promise of it, just that one use case was the ability to send digital currency or to send money from the US to El Salvador without having to pay Western Union. Because Western Union and kind of other payment firms take like a 10 to 15% cut of these global remittances. And 70% of El Salvadorians make get money from abroad because it's a small country. So we're talking like $400 million a year in fees saved by just sending digital currency. That one use case alone drew me in and seeing the actual usage drew me in. And then when I was in Bitcoin, then I learned about the other use cases. It's used as a store of value and it's used as a cryptographic proof or reserve currency for the world, which I can get into. But just the fact that this is happening now on a global basis with so many millions of users and trillions of dollars in capital to going into crypto, it's really just, it's the biggest thing going on right now in tech, in my view. Yeah, that's fascinating. I really like that you talk about these traditional uses of Bitcoin and don't get into the, the NFT world and Web3. Because I can relate to this idea of having a reserve currency that is independent of governments and it can be a store of value. It's like gold used to be. But I don't really get the other spin-offs of the crypto world, which are a little bit harder for me to grasp. So can you explain how this crypto world, what this crypto world looks like and what are the fringes of it and what is the kind of the core of it? And what do you where do you see it's going to evolve going forward? Sure, I'll give it a try. It's a big topic because although it started with Bitcoin and there are certain reasons for that, which I'll walk through more, but today crypto is just like a mix of everything from crowdfunding and the desire for people to invest into technology projects without being accredited investors or without putting very large amounts of money at stake. So that's one part of it is you can speculate on tokens, but they are liquid. So unlike a, a, another venture project, when you put some money in, you can also pull it out. So it's like trading. So you have crowdfunding, trading. You have open source, the open source movement, which is behind Bitcoin and many projects. So that pool, those communities, you have NFTs and all the things they raise and what they can be used for. You have DAOs, which are decentralized governance systems where people can, who are maybe anonymous or pseudonymous, can vote on things and allocate money and make investment decisions. So you really have seven or eight things that have kind of collided in one. But the base of Bitcoin is censorship resistance. So it's the idea that your money should be and your banking should be, quote unquote, permissionless. So instead of applying for a bank account in order to be to be able to store money, you could you should just be able to do it because you are a human being. You should just have the ability. So it's banking, the unbanked, it's global payments. It's a store of value similar to gold where it can be an inflation hedge. 
where gold can be mined but cannot be printed by central governments. So if the gov- government chooses to print a bunch of money and inflation goes up to 10, 20, or even as high as 80 plus percent in some countries, you want to have a place where you can park your cash or your wealth, where it'll stay there. So there's, th- those are some of the, the main forces behind Bitcoin originally, but it, it's really just picked up so much steam. And it's now interesting where we are. We're definitely in an early stage still because If we would say that Bitcoin was the first stage of crypto or Web3, and now we're whatever in the third stage, right now, the biggest use case for crypto is buying other crypto. So a lot of the DeFi, the decentralized finance that's happening on crypto is literally taking something and then swapping it or trading it or splitting it into different sub-tokens. It's pretty nuts. But those are, to the earlier point that was... um, made that they're not necessarily, they don't all map to real world use cases just yet. Tokens for more tokens doesn't make sense to even the people in the industry. But just when we see all the places where it can go, I think it can build a decentralized financial system of the future uh, through by the time we're done with all of this. Interesting. And there are other currencies than Bitcoin. So I was always wondering how much room there is for other currencies. The word is more like consolidating currencies. You've got the Eurozone countries who consolidated all their currencies into the Euro, and some companies, some countries adopt the US dollar. So there's a consolidation towards the US dollar and just disappearing in the real world, traditional currencies. And then you have these cryptocurrencies which are then appearing and then multi- multiplying. So why is there room for more currencies? How is it better to buy a new currency, invest in a new currency than an existing one? Can you enlighten me on this point? Yeah, yeah. I would say, and I forgot, one of the biggest benefits of Bitcoin is that it's decentralized because it doesn't have a central project. There's no founder. And the Bitcoin miners are basically the ones validating the transactions and the decisions are made. Whatever a majority of miners, 51% of all miners can vote for, that's what happens. So that sets Bitcoin aside from all of the other tokens, including Ethereum, which is a very large project. But all of the other tokens have centralized teams. So there's a founding team, a named founder. So those are really more, to me, they represent investments in specific projects. So it's like buying stocks. When you're buying into any of these, there are like over 20,000 tokens. At this point, all of them is like a company. And if you buy into Ethereum's value proposition, you buy their token, it's like owning a share of their system. So that's, to me, that's the easy way to navigate it. And so the position of the kind of SEC right now is that Bitcoin is a commodity or the closest to a commodity and everything else is probably a security And they're basically all individual companies. But that said, I don't see like an upper limit for how many tokens because there are so many startups in the US, even the ones that are not in Web3 today, presumably they could have tokens. Like at MarketMuse, we had a MarketMuse credit that you could buy for dollars. What if we had a MarketMuse token? I'm not saying we need to do that at this point. Future projects could actually be token denominated if it helps them as well. It does make things a bit more complicated and it might be curtailed if the SEC starts calling everything a security, then you actually are not going to want to necessarily do that. But that's the current state is you have 20,000 individual projects that you can speculate on. Okay, now I get it. It's interesting. And what about Bitcoin? If the supply of Bitcoins is limited and the mining keeps slowing down and down, so there's fewer and fewer Bitcoins being generated, but this is the commodity 
cryptocurrency and the demand is increasing. And is this a good thing or is it bottleneck? The US dollar is growing with the need for growth of the economy, the money supply needs, and then the US government prints more money and that makes the currency stable in a roundabout way. What's going to happen to crypto? Is it just going to keep going up and then crashes? Is this a good thing that it is, oh, even though it's unstable, it's at least growing? Or there would be a, it would be better if it was more stable and perhaps the supply of it could increase with the economy? Yeah, I mean, from a usage standpoint and a planning standpoint, it would be better if it was stable or more similar to the dollar in the sense of these large up and down swings. We haven't never done this kind of experiment before in the world. It's basically creating a new type of gold, a digital gold, where gold is mined and Bitcoin is mined and the supply is fixed and so on. So it, it does have a predictable monetary policy. So one Bitcoin always equals one Bitcoin when you're in the Bitcoin land. But then when you're moving, when you're trying to use it as a global reserve, it is problematic if the reserve goes away. El Salvador actually saw that because they had to write off about 100 million in their Bitcoin assets because of just a recent crash that happened this year, but caused by Web3 projects. But then actually China swooped in, gave them some more money. And now the president went on Twitter, I think a week ago and said, from now on, we're going to buy one Bitcoin every day going forward, I guess forever. I don't know. So the idea of having a reserve is really, I think it's really cool. It encourages savings, especially in the US. There's a lot of just spending and putting on credit cards. Now you have an easy way to save and put money into something where one Bitcoin will always equal one Bitcoin in the future with the idea that as adoption increases, obviously the US denomination of that Bitcoin is going to go up. So then that's where kind of it gets people get either really excited or really afraid or, or just sick of the volatility. But I think to answer your question, as we get more adoption, I think it'll level off and it'll just get to a more stable. It'll always have some volatility, but it should become more, more stable in the future. But I'll put it this way. If, you know, it, it, does, it is an attractive, it seems like an attractive place to park wealth. If you have extra money that you don't need to use right now and you want to put it away for the future, but you may not want to put it in stocks and bonds, maybe they don't pay more than inflation or whatever, maybe they do, but it's very minor, then, then putting this in a place where it just literally cannot be taken away from you, that has some interesting benefits. And in it's one that I would recommend to friends and family and so on. Yeah, that's interesting. So just thinking about the what could be the impact on economic policy if that gets a wider adoption, essentially, wouldn't that remove the, the power of the government to actually manage the economy and economic growth? And could we be looking at big, big fluctuations in the economy and have another you know, Great Depression? Because when the gold price going up and down, it can really create some gyrations in the economy as well, couldn't it? I'm sure that has been a source of monetary policy before. I would say, I would actually, I had to kind of, when I was getting into Bitcoin, I living in the US, I was thinking from a US-centric view. And I guess the first thing I would say is, I think the dollar, which is the world's reserve currency, I think the dollar is fantastic. 
and frankly, more useful in more ways, right? You can use it as a medium of exchange. You can buy things. The dollar is today still very strong. And I think Bitcoin is, to some extent, it's about the Fed printing money. And that's there was a lot of money printed recently. And that's definitely hurts. But that is even, I would say, like a moderate use case. I think this will be extremely useful in places in Africa and South America, where literally we have situations like in Argentina, where there have been three, three massive devaluations. The Federal Reserve was stolen by the prime minister to where everybody lost their deposits because the government had to claim everyone's bank deposits. That's the kind of really horrible behavior that people want to insure against. And then also, of course, the kind of willy-nilly printing of money also is just, it's a nice use case. It's like a nice to have. But if you're in a, like in a country where you, either you don't have access to dollars or you do, but you have to go through banks and jump through hoops, this is an alternative to that. And that will keep, keep people honest. Would it be, would the amount of Bitcoin, let's say, or all that crypto be large enough to swing markets tremendously? It's possible, but it's such a small percent of gold and derivatives and so on. So for example, the, the, the total derivatives market is one quadrillion dollars. It's a thousand trillion dollars in kind of notional derivative contract value. Crypto is at the moment, that's like one trillion dollars dollars total. I forget the amount of gold, but I want to say it's 60 or something trillion. So it's still just a small fraction. And basically, the I guess the core kind of principle of anything built in the blockchain is that it's open source, ideally, or most of these, almost all of these things are. And it's on a blockchain that cannot be controlled by anyone. And so it really ferrets out corruption, which is really the goal of all of this is to give people the power to or empower them to own their assets and make it resistant to people stealing it from them, even if those people are government people. And I guess there are enough miners so that they cannot be consolidated. Yes, there are consolidated entities, but the vast majority of them are mining pools where basically the biggest miners in Bitcoin, by and large, are pools of people who have kind of put their machines together into a large pool. So yeah, basically mining is very decentralized to the point where it's, it, I think what there is one miner that owns like 20% of the hash rate. And I could be totally wrong on that because yeah, I'm thinking, I think of Marathon and they actually just do this with other companies. So basically the only way to mine that much hash rate is, you know, going to be very hard to collude or to create collusion. So yeah, I think for Bitcoin, it's much harder to do that. And these miners are in all these different countries and you can't find them and whatever. I think for some of the other projects, that's maybe a bigger risk for Ethereum is people have pointed to 50% of whatever Ethereum servers are in the US. And if the US passes a law on US-based servers, then they could control that. But even so, it, it, th these systems are so much more decentralized and so much more modular and so much more auditable than anything that has existed in finance so far, that if we go from 98% perfect and there's 2% still options for collusion or something, we're still 98% ahead, which when it comes to trillions of dollars, it makes a big deal. And that's why banks and governments are taking this very seriously now. Love it. So your new company, or maybe not so new anymore, DSC Link actually helps people make a yield on their Bitcoin. So how do you do that? How is Bitcoin lending a thing? How can someone make a yield? It is. And so basically the, the part of the biggest use case we're solving, there's a number of use cases, but the biggest use case we're solving is great. 
I hold Bitcoin, but while I'm waiting 20 years to retire or whatever, whenever I might need those funds, can I earn something with this? Because it's just, there's an opportunity cost. And Bitcoin doesn't itself generate a yield. So you cannot, it doesn't, unlike a company, when you buy company shares, you're buying into the future profits of that company. With Bitcoin, you just hold some number of it and then it's there. So what people can do is they can use the Bitcoin Think of it again as gold, as collateral, and take a loan in another token or in dollars. Let's use dollars. Let's say gold and dollars to make it simple. So you put up some gold because you have a lot of gold, and now you take some dollars against it, and you take those dollars and you invest it into the stock market or whatever you want. You earn a return, and as long as the price of gold doesn't plummet, you know you're earning a return while you're holding. It's also not a taxable event because you're taking a loan. So basically, while people are holding these tokens, Bitcoin included, they should be able to do this. However, the only way the problem we're solving is, and that's an existing market, by the way. There's like just one platform. I was looking at it. Even in this, right now we're in a crypto winter. Everything has crashed tremendously, but there's $6 billion in one lending platform called Aave. And there's a bunch of other ones too. So there are a lot of lending platforms because this is a common use case. So, so, so that's great. But the problem we're solving is when it comes to Bitcoin, the, when you want to take a loan, you take this decentralized money and you have to send it to a custodian a third party to hold it because Bitcoin is not interoperable with any of the other chains. Basically, the other chains came later, Ethereum came later. A lot of the tokens are built on Ethereum. So think of just Bitcoin and Ethereum to make it simple. You cannot use Bitcoin and Ethereum. They can't talk to each other. So the technology we're building is basically, it's actually, it's an invention by a Bitcoiner. It basically, the, the guy who co-created the Lightning Network, which is a big network on top of Bitcoin, that guy's at MIT, and he created the technology called discrete log contracts that we're commercializing. And basically what our platform lets you do is instead of taking that Bitcoin sending it to a third-party custodian and then having that custodian kind of lend on your behalf, we're letting you lock it in your wallet into a, and do, take the contract right from your wallet. So you actually don't have to send your Bitcoin anywhere. So you, I could take a loan, I could take my Bitcoin, lock it in my wallet, accept the terms and conditions, t- take a loan on it, do things with that loan. And if I pay the loan back, the Bitcoin is unlocked. And if I default, then the Bitcoin is automatically swept to the lender side. And the only, this is just like a regular lender, except there are no humans involved anywhere. It is all smart contracts because the lending platform operates through smart contracts. It gets the price through other smart contracts called oracles. It's a completely bankless, decentralized system. And so we're basically t- today, the only way to do this is to have one custodian involved where you send the Bitcoin. And we have had three major custodians fail this year. I think over $100 billion, $100 billion was lost this year from the failures of Celsius, which is a lender, Voyager, which is an exchange, Terra Luna, which was like a token and a bunch of affiliated businesses, and now FTX, which is a custodian and a bunch of other businesses. 
and Alameda, their sister, kind of trading firm. So you had five really big companies blow up, and then it has all these follow-on effects. And so basically, if one of the biggest kind of custodians blew up, you don't know if the others might. So why take your decentralized Bitcoin and send it to somewhere, someone who might frankly lose it or be irresponsible with it? So that's why we're enabling lending from the wallet directly. And the wallet, is it on the blockchain as well? Yes. So your Bitcoin, if your Bitcoin's on the blockchain. The escrow contract you move it into is on the Bitcoin blockchain. And when it moves back, it's on the Bitcoin blockchain. So it never leaves the Bitcoin blockchain, never leaves your possession at any point in time. So that's what that's a future we're building with this platform. That's pretty significant It's because you're enabling people to use the Bitcoins as collateral in a safe way without having to run counterparty risk on the institutions that handle it. And then essentially the Bitcoin holder completely controls through, well, they don't completely control it, but they do control it through the smart contracts to the degree that the contract allows them to control it, I guess. The user controls their, makes a decision on which lender to trust. And then when the lender presents the contract, they have to sign that contract. And so just like a lending kind of contract, here's the amount you're putting up, here's what you're getting, and then here are the terms of liquidation, the interest rate you're paying, and you sign that contract in your wallet as a user. From there on, it's completely out of your hands. It is just controlled by smart contracts on the lender side and on Ethereum and on whatever technologies they use and whatever. All of that is from there on fully decentralized. But the smart contracts are still subject to the laws of the country and the decisions of judges, right? I don't know, because those are smart contracts that run on a blockchain. So once you put these on the blockchain, they're just there. And so they can't be changed. The only way they could be changed is if the entire Ethereum, 51% of the community changes them or they are forced to. But that probably, even if something like that, something huge like that were to happen, it probably wouldn't influence your loan. So it is immutable. It's out there. So if you, let's maybe walk through this because it's interesting. If you take a loan and then your country decides for some reason that you can't take that loan, that's... Yeah, that's too bad. It's on the chain. It's that is not that cannot be influenced by. Yeah, I mean, they could the country could arrest you as a person for taking that loan. But if they make a law after you took the loan, if you were legally able to take that loan, then it's just out there. Then if you've taken a loan with certain terms or whatever, and they and it's going to be whatever repaid in a hundred years, then you've that that then a hundred years later that smart contract will unlock or whatever conditions you put on it. So yeah, that's, I think, I'm pretty sure it could not be just changed once it's on the blockchain. So let's say I default, take out a loan, or let's say I have Bitcoin, I use it as collateral, I make a loan through smart contracts, someone borrows that money, they default on it. What if they default in other way than paying the interest on the principal? Let's say they become insolvent, and that can be a default under the loan, right? Or they uh, maybe they reorganize themselves, which was not allowed by the loan terms. So who enforces those defaults that are not super simple, like a loan repayment? Or then maybe in a smart contract, the only default is the loan payment of the loan? You cannot in, have other defaults? Yeah, payment. in this case, you cannot because the nature of a crypto loan is very limited because it's a 
collateralized loan. So basically, you're just saying, here's twice as, here's $100,000 worth of Bitcoin. I can take up to $50,000 and it's secured by the presence of the collateral. There's no credit check. There's no driver's license. You don't have to even be a person. Uh, it's just the amount of money that or tokens that shows that is makes eligible. So there are no other kind of covenants possible. If the lender default, if the lender, let's say, goes out of business, and this is where I actually haven't really gotten this question before, but it's a great question, is what happens if the lender disappears while their code is still running on the blockchain? But so yeah. so administration and some of it take over their wallet and Yes. So that's what it is. Yeah. Private keys to the wallet are the things securing it. So let's say you lose your keys or keys are stolen, then somebody else now has those keys. So the keys that you use to access the blockchain, those can shift around. So a court could decide that the lender now is something else or whatever part of the government. And now they get, if they get your keys, then they will have access to it. Yeah. But even then, the logic itself is embedded into the smart contract. So all they would get is the that loan instrument, but they couldn't change the rate or something on yes. you. I got it. Very fascinating. So I think you got into a little bit of a rabbit hole. I hope the listeners were able to follow the discussion. But there's a lot more to it, obviously. So if our listeners would like to learn more where can they go? How can they learn more about DLC Link? Give us some places where we can explore. Sure. Our website is dlc.link. On Twitter, it's dlc underscore link. My name is just on Twitter at Akibalog, in just my first and last name. Yeah, those are probably the best places to start. We have YouTube channel, we have a Discord, you know, yada, yada. But yeah, probably Twitter is actually the best place to read about us. Fantastic. So definitely check out Aki Balong, the co-founder and president of Market News, as well as the founder of DLC Link, which allows, it creates these Bitcoin wallets that allows you to fully control your Bitcoin, make money with it, and so on, opening new avenues for Bitcoin investors. And if you enjoyed that show, then I recommend that you check out the transcript, which is on mbppod.com, like Management Blueprint, mbppod.com. You can find the show notes, you can find previous episodes, future episodes there. And if you'd like to explore a custom business operating system that allows you to grow your business, take it to the next level, to the top of the mountain, then check out my website, stevepreda.com as well. So Aki, it was great having you on the show. Thanks for coming and sharing your very, very state-of-the-art knowledge about the crypto world. And want to have a great day. Thank you.